Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Southern Fraud True Crime covers cases that are not suitable for young listeners, and there may also be some explicit language used. Specifically today, you will hear a racial slur, though it will be bleeped out. It is central to this case, but I do apologize ahead of time. Today's episode also involves the sexual assault of a minor, so I would like to emphasize listener discretion. On a sweltering August day in 1980, 16-year-old Cheryl D. Ferguson was up early on a Saturday. She was meeting the bus at her school at 7.15 a.m., though school didn't start for another couple of weeks. Cheryl was the manager for the girls' volleyball team, and she was traveling with the team to play in a tournament at a high school in Conroe, Texas. At around 9.30 a.m., Cheryl went to use the restroom and never returned. Her teammates became worried after a couple of hours and were walking around the gym and auditorium shouting her name. The police were called. A black janitorial supervisor named Clarence Branley told another janitor that they had better help look for the girl. They found her body hidden in a loft above the auditorium. She was nude and had been strangled to death. Branley immediately found one of the police officers and brought him to the scene. But within days, Clarence Branley was arrested without any physical evidence and before an investigation had even really started. What followed was more than a miscarriage of justice. The police, prosecutors, three judges, and even the damn district court clerk colluded to frame Clarence Branley with nothing but pure racism in their hearts. He spent almost 10 years on death row, and there was never justice for Cheryl. Welcome to Episode 64, The Murder of Cheryl Ferguson and the Attempted Murder of Clarence Branley by the State of Texas. Conroe, Texas is a mid-sized town and the seat of Montgomery County in East Texas, in the Piney Woods area between Houston and Huntsville. Today, Conroe has over 85,000 residents. In 1980, there were only around 18,000. It was considered a sleepy, peaceful East Texas small town, but appearances can be deceiving. Conroe has an extremely ugly history of racism, public lynchings, and the presence of the KKK. In 1922, a black man was accused of raping a white girl. They were actually dating, but when caught, she was scared and said he raped her. A posse of white men caught the black man named Joe Winters and drug him to the town square. He was chained to the fence around the courthouse, and in front of a jeering crowd, he was burned alive. The local newspaper reported in the headlines proudly the next day, quote, Joe Winters burned here. Negro pays penalty for assault on 14-year-old girl. In 1941, another black man named Bob White was accused of raping a white woman named Ruby Cochran. Ruby's husband, Dude Cochran, decided to take things into his own hands. He snuck up behind Mr. White and shot him dead, right in the courtroom. It took an all-white jury less than a minute to declare Dude Cochran not guilty, and he was given a hero's celebration. In 1973, just seven years before the murder of Cheryl Ferguson, a black man named Greg Still was shot to death in a jail cell at the Conroe Courthouse two days before Christmas. He had been arrested for a barroom fight, but his family said he was dating a white girl and had ignored warnings to end the relationship. In 
the officer was put on trial and claimed self-defense, saying that Steele had pulled a knife on him. He was found not guilty, even though Greg Steele had been shot in the back three times and there was no evidence of a knife or blood. Nick Davies, the author who wrote White Lies, Rape, Murder, and Justice, Texas Style, began his research into the racist history of Conroe with his article called The Town That Loved Lynching. In his seminal book on the Branley case, he outlines dozens of similar incidents in the last 100 years of history since Conroe was established in 1881 before Cheryl Ferguson's murder in 1980. And Davies points out that in almost all incidents, a black man is accused of attacking a white person in some way. Normally, I would not give you so many examples of the bad parts of a town before we get into a case. But historically, these previous cases matter a great deal to Clarence Branley and Cheryl Ferguson. I'm going to pause now for a quick commercial break. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Cheryl D. Ferguson lived in the town of Belleville with her father, Buck Ferguson. She was born on August 10, 1964. She was tall and willowy with dark blonde hair. She was an artist and a budding journalist, working on her school paper and painting a mural for the team sports at Belleville High. She had a passion for roller skating and even worked part-time at the rink to earn extra money. She lived with her father, Buck, on a horse ranch and she loved to wear Western-style clothes, not just because of the urban cowboy craze of 1980, but because her daddy had been in the rodeo. She often wore cowboy boots and a belt with a huge buckle and her name stamped into the leather on the back, and she always wore a gold chain with a crucifix. It was just her, her dad, and her beloved cat at home these days. Her older brothers, Jerry and Jimmy, had graduated and moved to Houston. Her mother, Sylvia, had passed away in January of 1979, just eight months earlier of cancer. Despite having just lost her mother, Cheryl was still a cheerful and upbeat girl. She was a joiner, belonging to many school clubs, and she had just become the manager for the girls' volleyball team. On the morning of August 23rd, she was rushing around because she was late, and she was anxious to make a good impression on the coach. But she got to the school on time, not missing the bus taking the team to Conroe High School about an hour northeast of Belleville. She wasn't late, but a team member was. The bus arrived at Conroe High at 9.10 a.m. Since they were late, all the space in the locker room for dressing was taken, so the girls had to take a space in the warm-up gym. Cheryl put down her stuff and then went to look for a bathroom. She just had a few minutes before the first match started. Instead of trying to go into the full locker room, she turned the other way down a long, deserted hallway. Barely a minute later, her coach came looking for her, but she had vanished. Clarence Branley was working that Saturday morning, not just for the overtime, but in his position as supervisor of the janitorial staff, he knew there would be a lot of work to be done before school started. He hadn't even known about the volleyball tournament until he saw a coach prop open a gym door with a garbage can. He went and unlocked the doors for the tournament. Clarence Lee Branley had been born in Montgomery, Texas on September 24, 1951. His parents, Willie and Minnie Ola, were divorced, and he had a sister named Margaret and a brother named Ozell, who went by OT. In 1980, he was 28 and living in a housing project in southeast Conroe. He had recently moved from Houston after separating from his wife. He had five children with his ex, Evelyn, but had struggled in Houston. As he told author Nick Davies, he had been living a fast life. His job at Conroe High School meant a great deal to him. He was also working to bring his oldest son, Clarence Jr., to live in Conroe with him. Evelyn had no arguments about this as long as he had settled down. 
He was determined to make this right. He had a girlfriend named Beverly and was working hard to change his life. Beverly dropped Clarence off at Conroe High School at around 7.40 that morning, and he unlocked the maintenance door. He spotted Icky Peace already waiting for him. Icky's real name was Henry, but that nickname had stuck since childhood. Icky stood about 4 foot 11, but weighed nearly 200 pounds. He was the only janitor who was friendly with Clarence. Gary Ackerman, a sullen white man, 21 years old, showed up around 8 a.m., along with John Sessom, who was a bit older, white, and a known alcoholic. Rounding out the men working that morning was Sam Martinez, a young Hispanic man that Clarence generally liked, though he didn't know him well. Gary Ackerman was openly hostile towards his new boss, calling him the N-word, even when Clarence was within earshot. Clarence turned the other cheek and made friendly overtures to Ackerman, who still disrespected him in front of the other janitors. Clarence told Sesum, Ackerman, and Martinez to set up tables and chairs in the cafeteria. There was a meeting for all Conroe District teachers scheduled to be in there Monday morning. He went with Icky Peace to get Icky set up to buff the floor in the teacher's lounge. He was going to help, but Icky assured his boss he could do it himself, so Clarence moved on checking other parts of the building. At around 9.30 a.m., Clarence was worried about the heat in the gyms, so he went to open windows and set up fans. As he walked by, he noticed his crew just standing around. None of them had been thrilled to work on a Saturday. Clarence had graciously told them that it would just be a few hours of work, but that they could still claim the whole day on their timesheets. It didn't stop their attitudes toward him. Clarence went to refill the toilet paper in the bathrooms, but Gary Ackerman stopped him and said, Don't go in the girls' restroom, Clarence. There's a girl in there. Clarence said he wouldn't go in there and then sent the men across the street to the vocational building. They had a few things to get done in there as well. He said he would meet them over there in a few minutes. He went to his office and had a cigarette and then went and let the men into the vocational building. At around 11 a.m., Clarence went to check the cafeteria to see if that work was done, and sure enough, the men had half-assed the job, so Clarence and Nikki had to finish it up. At 11.30, Clarence told the men they could go home, again assuring them that they could claim the whole day's work. Ackerman, Sesame, and Martinez left together. Clarence asked if Icky Peace would wait and give him a ride home. As they walked outside, Clarence spotted a police car. When he asked what the problem was, the officer told him a girl was missing. They walked back into the building and heard the girl shouting Cheryl over and over again. Clarence figured they had better start helping look for the girl. He and Dickie took off to go look, and he immediately noticed that one of the lobby doors from the parking lot was unlocked. That wasn't right. He had also noticed a garbage can propping up an outside door earlier. All outer doors were to remain locked. He then noticed the auditorium door was open, too, so he and Icky went to check it out. Sure enough, a door to the left of the auditorium stage that led to the bathrooms was unlocked and another door leading outside was also open. Clarence and Icky made their way up to the dark loft above the auditorium. Feeling around in the dark, Icky moved a wooden flat away from a wall, and there she was. Cheryl Ferguson was nude except for one sock. Her blue eyes stared upwards. Her mouth was frozen open. Icky screamed, and then Clarence told him to stay there while he went for the cops. Icky ran with him, terrified. They alerted the cop they had seen earlier and then went and sat down in the first row of the auditorium, not sure what else to do. Police combed the scene, and one cop took hair seen on Cheryl's thigh and put them in the cellophane of his cigarette pack for safekeeping. Her gold crucifix was found, but not the chain. Part of her bra was found, and a paper towel was near her body. After an hour or so, the cop asked if Clarence and Icky would come make statements at the station. They agreed, but felt unsettled riding in the police car on the way. They both gave statements and were fingerprinted, and then asked if they would go give blood samples, and they agreed. Clarence was then told to give a hair sample, and then the doctor took pubic hair samples as well. As the cop drove them back to the school, Icky told Clarence he was worried. He couldn't read or write, and he had asked the police if his sister could come read his statement before he signed it. The cops had refused but Icky had signed the statement anyway. As they got back to the school, the cops were searching Icky's car and pulled out weapons he wasn't supposed to have. 
a couple of knives, and a billy club. Icky was even more scared. Clarence was watching all of this thoughtfully, worried. One of the cops walked back over to Clarence with Icky in tow. Clarence said that the cop looked at the two of them up and down and said, quote, One of you two is going to hang for this. Then he looked Clarence in the eye and said, quote, Since you're the n- you're elected. The captain of detectives for the Conroe police gave his men Sunday off. By Monday morning, a cleaning crew had come through and cleaned up the crime scene. It was a sloppy mistake. Despite his fear, Clarence got up and went to work Monday morning. Before long, his boss came to get him and said the Conroe police wanted him and the other four janitors on duty that morning down at the station. This time, Ackerman, Sessom, and Martinez made statements. And Clarence and Icky were asked to take a lie detector test in Houston. They complied. They knew they hadn't done anything wrong. The polygraph examiner even told Clarence that he had passed and had nothing to worry about. Back at the school, Cheryl's clothes were found in a dumpster behind the gym. By Thursday, Texas Ranger Wesley Stiles was put in charge of the investigation, and he immediately focused on Clarence and Nikki Peace because they were the ones who found Cheryl's body. He arrested Clarence Brandley the next day without even beginning his investigation or interviewing any of the other janitors. The district attorney for the 9th Judicial District in Texas, Jim Keishan Jr., had called the supervisor of the polygraph examiner in Houston to look back over Clarence's test. This time, they claimed they found one deception. This was what they used to arrest Clarence Brandley. At this point, none of the physical evidence had been processed, nor had Cheryl Ferguson's autopsy been done yet. Her body was taken to Houston on Sunday, after Clarence was arrested that Friday before. By Saturday morning, Clarence's family had raised enough money for a defense attorney, Ray Reeves, but he was not allowed to confer with his client. Finally, they let him see Clarence, who told him emphatically that he did not do it. That same day, Ranger West Stiles took Ackerman, Martinez, and Sesum for a walk through the school to get their story. All three said that they had seen Cheryl Ferguson walk down the hallway, and then they said they saw Clarence follow her up to the auditorium. These men were never taken in for hair or blood samples, and this was an informal interview, but they all signed new statements. Cheryl's autopsy was conducted by Dr. Joseph Yakimzik. There was semen found on Cheryl's body and swabs were taken. Three Caucasian hairs were found near her vagina. Her hymen was intact, but there was also semen found in her vagina. The state's theory would later be that Cheryl was killed first, and her hymen wasn't broken during the rape because her muscles had naturally relaxed after she died. I'm not sure I've ever heard of this as a reason before, but it's also possible that the rapist did not fully penetrate her. Her bladder was empty, leading investigators to believe that she had just used the restroom. It fit with the other janitor's stories. That they had seen Cheryl walking towards the restrooms down the hall. There had been blood found on her socks and blouse, and it was tested as type A. Clarence Branley was type O. She had bruises on her arms and the heels of her hands. She had cuts on her knees and a four-and-a-half-inch abrasion on her neck. She had been strangled. But her fingernails were not broken. It looked as though she had not fought back. Also, there was an indention of her crucifix on the back of her neck. It is more likely that those bruises are from someone holding her down, pressing her hands hard onto the floor. If investigators had studied the photographs and considered the crime scene, it looked more like two men were involved. One man holding her down on the floor on her back, gripping her arms, and maybe even kneeling on her hands. On September 5th, in a pretrial hearing, Clarence was granted bond at $30,000. It may as well have been $30 million. His family couldn't raise that much money. And then Ray Reeves made the mistake of letting Clarence testify before the grand jury. D.A. Jim Keishan kept firing improper questions at him. Had he ever raped a girl? Had he ever masturbated in the school auditorium or had sex with anyone in there before? He also brought up two women that Clarence knew. One was a prostitute named Joellen Parrish, who had once accused him of rape. She had stayed over at Clarence's apartment, and when her pimp boyfriend found out about this, she had lied. But she had retracted the statement and charges were not filed against Clarence. 
Keishan also asked Clarence if he knew of a woman who went by the name of Pokey. Clarence said yes, he knew her. Then he asked if it was true if Clarence had raped her, and Clarence denied it. Did she report you to the police, Keishan asked? No, was the answer. Ray Reeves knew he made a huge mistake letting Clarence testify. Keishan was bringing up unsubstantiated rumors, and if it had been at trial, Reeves could have objected. As it was, the grand jury was left with the impression that Clarence had a history of rape. He was indicted, and his trial date was set for December of 1980. Reeves filed two motions with the district court clerk, Peggy Stevens. One was to have the judge instruct Jim Keishan to stop interfering with witnesses and all those witnesses to be interviewed by the defense. He accused Keishan of unethical behavior and unprofessional conduct. The judge denied that motion. The second motion was a request for 18 pieces of evidence that, so far, the district attorney had refused to turn over to Ray Reeves. In pretrial hearings, Judge Lee Allworth refused to give the defense a copy of the autopsy report. He did not order photographs of Cheryl's body to be turned over, nor any of the other scientific evidence. He also refused to hand over criminal records of any witnesses at the school, including the other janitors. All he allowed Reeves to have was a few crime scene photos and access to some of Cheryl's clothing, but he did not release them at that time. This was a basic discovery motion, and Ray Reeves was denied, and he should have already had access to all of this evidence. It was absurd. Ray Reeves knew he was out of his league, and by now, Clarence's brother O.T. had the same feeling. O.T. found two seasoned trial lawyers in Conroe who worked together. George Morris and Don Brown. They didn't want to take on the case, but agreed to assist Ray Reeves. At their first meeting with Reeves, which was in a smoky bar, they knew they had to take over the case. Ray Reeves may have believed in his client and was fighting for him, but he was a racist. He said the N-word several times in front of the two men. They took over the case and wrote up a blistering motion listing all evidence that had been denied by Keishan and Judge Allworth and threatened to appeal to a higher court if they were denied. On October 3rd, 40 days after the autopsy, the defense finally got a look at the report. But they still did not get a transcript of the grand jury proceeding, no copy of Clarence's statement, no photographs of the crime scene or the clothing that the judge had promised Ray Reeves. Keishan finally agreed to hand over this evidence, and he tasked Ranger Wesley Stiles with retrieving the box and bringing it to the attorneys. To their horror, the attorneys found there was no rape kit in the box, meaning the vaginal swabs and other semen samples were missing. The only piece of clothing in the box was Cheryl's underwear, but it had a piece cut out where there had been a semen stain. So that would indicate that it had been sent for testing. So where was the lab report? The one thing Ray Reeves had done right was to take what little money the Branley family had raised and hired a private investigator. Lorna Hubble had come from Houston and spent six weeks interviewing people on her own. John Sessom told again about how he, Ackerman, and Martinez had finished up in the cafeteria and then saw Cheryl Ferguson. He said that then Clarence had told them to go wait across the street. That was basically all the prosecution had. Clarence had separated from the group when he went to his office for a cigarette. Clarence disputed their story that he was gone for 45 minutes, insisting he could not have been gone for more than 10 minutes. He knew the men were waiting outside the building in the heat. They wouldn't have waited for 45 minutes, not these guys who barely followed his orders to begin with. Hubble talked to Gary Ackerman, who acted extremely suspicious. He just kept saying, what did John say? What did John say? He meant John Sessom. Meanwhile, George Morris and Don Brown were fighting with the DA, Jim Keishan, and Judge Lee Allworth over every motion in pretrial hearings. Time and again, they were overruled. They pleaded with the judge to order samples of hair, blood, and saliva from the other janitors. They were denied. As for the missing rape kit, Keishan pled ignorance. He insisted that neither his office, the Conroe Police Department, nor the Department of Safety's lab had the missing evidence. Don Brown decided to call Dr. Joseph Yakimzik himself. He was hoping to find out that the doctor either still had the samples or could testify that he had turned them over to the police. To his astonishment, the seasoned medical examiner said, quote, Oh gosh, that's more than 30 days ago. I throw everything away after 30 days. 
in a rape murder trial? Brown exclaimed. The doctor said yes. Unless the police asked for the evidence, he didn't have the room for storage. Now, anyone who has ever even seen an episode of Law & Order or CSI knows that this is complete bullshit. The evidence would have been handed over after all testing was done, and it would have been stored with the police to safeguard the swabs until trial. Brown and Morris had now decided to use their own collateral to make Clarence's bond. With all the missing evidence, they needed his assistance to put the pieces together. D.A. Jim Keeshan, Judge Lee Allworth, and Sheriff Gene Reeves all worked together to make sure Clarence didn't get bond. In a heated private meeting in judges' chambers, the sheriff and the D.A. both referred to Clarence Branley with the N-word, insisting he should not be released, though bond had already been ordered. Brown and Morris took a writ of habeas corpus to the Court of Criminal Appeals in Austin, going over Judge Allworth's head. Allworth found out and ordered the sheriff to release Clarence on bond on the morning of November 14th. That morning, when Brown and Morris showed up to make bond, they were handed a motion from the DA, Jim Keeshan, signed by Judge Allworth, to raise the bond to 75000 Without a hearing, Keeshan and Allworth raised the bond. It was illegal. At this, Clarence attorneys had no choice but to do what every lawyer dreads. They filed a motion to have Judge Allworth recused. Allworth stepped down voluntarily, but fixed it with the county administrative judge that he got to choose his replacement. The Honorable Sam Robertson Jr. would be taking over the case. He was known as a prosecutor's judge, and he proved it in his first hearing by upholding Keishan's new motion despite the illegality of the new higher bond. Clarence Branley would not see the light of day for almost 10 years. I'm going to pause now to hear a word from today's sponsor. I don't know about you, but I hate the awkward fitting room experiences with bra shopping. That's why I'm so excited to tell you about Third Love. I used Third Love's simple online fit finder quiz and had my bra shipped right to my door. Not only was it super convenient, I immediately fell in love with the soft, breathable material and was thrilled with the fit. The Third Love Fit Finder quiz takes about 60 seconds with just a few simple questions. And Third Love offers more than 70 sizes, including their signature half cup sizes. Even better, while other brands price based on sizing, at Third Love, all bras cost the same, regardless of size. Third Love offers a 100% fit guarantee. Every customer has 60 days to wear it, wash it, and put it to the test. If you don't love it, just return it, and Third Love will wash it and donate it to a woman in need. Third Love knows there's a perfect bra for everyone, so right now they are offering my listeners 15% off your first order. Go to thirdlove.com southernfried now to find your perfect fitting bra and get 15% off your first purchase. That's thirdlove.com com/southernfried for 15% off today. Attorneys for Clarence Branley had just about 2 weeks to prepare their case due to the Thanksgiving holiday. They poured over the evidence and felt sure that Cheryl Ferguson had been attacked by two men. From the bruises on her upper arms and the palms of her hands, and with the indention of the crucifix on the back of her neck, it would appear that one man held Cheryl's arms, possibly kneeling on her hands, causing those bruises. And there were also two types of Caucasian hairs found. One was black and one was reddish in color. Neither were from a black man. And then there was the blood typing. It did not match Clarence. However, there were two hairs found that did come from a black man. They knew that Clarence Branley had been forced to have pubic hair removed, as well as hair from his head, when they took his samples at the hospital. They strongly believed that those hairs were planted. After everything else that had already happened in this case, it was not all that far-fetched to think someone had planted those hairs. But this was a dangerous argument to take in front of a jury. If they accused law enforcement of planning evidence without proof, they would likely be shut down quickly by the judge and alienate the jury. Clarence Branley was no O.J. Simpson. Their next problem was Judge Robertson. They had to get rid of him. Just eight days after successfully getting Allworth to step down, they filed a motion of recusal on Judge Robertson 
because he had upheld Judge Allworth's illegal ruling. This time they lost, and at the hearing, Judge Lynn Coker listened to arguments and then ruled that Robertson could stay on the case anyway. It was a nightmare. But the attorneys had no choice but to carry on, now in front of a judge who would be openly hostile after their attempt at recusal. Clarence Branley's trial began on December 8, 1980, as the rest of the world was grieving over the assassination of John Lennon. Jury selection went exactly as you might suspect. D.A. Jim Keishan made sure to use all of his peremptory challenges to cut any black person off the jury panel. Five women and seven men, all white, would decide Clarence Branley's fate. Brown and Morris watched carefully as Jim Keishan put on the state's evidence. They were waiting to be ambushed with something. They still found it hard to believe that Keishan would go to a capital trial with only circumstantial evidence, especially when any physical evidence collected had supposedly been lost. But they were wrong. They also had to sit there and take it every time Judge Robertson overruled their objections. In the three days that Keishan put on evidence, they watched as law enforcement, the medical examiner, and other experts got on the stand and sheepishly admitted to either losing evidence or not collecting it in the first place. It was almost laughable, except that a man's life was at stake. The captain of detectives had to admit in open court that many of the crime scene and autopsy photos were lost when the camera had supposedly been put on the wrong setting. When Brown cross-examined him, he asked if they had tried to have the photos developed. The captain said yes. They were taken to Fox Photo, but they did not turn out. Fox Photo is a little shop in the mall where civilians drop off their film. Not the DPS lab in Austin, not the FBI lab in Houston, or even the Montgomery County lab. Fox Photo in the mall. The medical examiner took the stand and outlined his findings that Cheryl Ferguson had died from asphyxia caused by ligature strangulation. He speculated it would have taken about 30 seconds for her to lose consciousness and three minutes to die. But he insisted that her bladder being empty meant that she was attacked right after using the restroom, even though a human bladder fills with urine at the rate of two milliliters a minute. That means if it only took Cheryl three minutes to die, she would have had at least six millimeters of urine left in her bladder. And the good doctor disagreed that she had released her bladder in death, naturally, as muscles relaxed, while at the same time insisting that her hymen was not broken because she was raped after death and her muscles had relaxed. He literally contradicted himself on stand. When asked about the missing semen swabs, he first claimed that he had handed them to the captain of detectives, and then backtracked and said he wasn't sure. He may have forgotten. He also said he may not have taken swabs if the police didn't specifically ask for them. Dr. Joseph Yakimzik was either the most incompetent medical examiner I've ever heard of, or he was a liar and colluded with the prosecution. The defense put on their own expert from the Forensic Science Institute in Dallas. She specialized in analyzing bodily fluids. Brown asked her if it was unusual to have no vaginal swabs from a rape victim. She replied that it wasn't just unusual. That's the whole purpose of doing the rape examination. But the state's embarrassing testimony from law enforcement and other officials could not undermine the testimony of the other four janitors who had worked with Clarence Branley that morning. They all uniformly testified that Clarence Branley was the only one with the keys to the building and therefore access to the auditorium loft. They all said he went missing for 30 to 45 minutes. Even Icky Peace, Clarence's only friendly employee now claimed that Clarence had sent him up to that loft to check by himself three times. The implication being that Clarence had wanted Icky to discover the body. It was all lies. But when you have three white janitors and one Hispanic janitor all telling the same story about a black janitor, who was this jury going to believe? One thing the prosecution had not counted on was a seasoned and fair juror named Bill Srack. He had sat on three other jury trials, and he was not a racist. He watched dumbfounded as the state put on such a weak case and was smart enough to read between the lines. When the state and defense finished closing arguments and the jury went to deliberate, their first vote was 10 to 2 for guilt. Only one of the women had voted not guilty. Now they went around the table giving all their reasons. All of them said they believed the other janitor's stories, and that the defense had not given a good reason for the time that Branley had been missing. 
They didn't care about the lack of physical evidence. The woman who had voted not guilty now mumbled that she was undecided. Bill Strack said straight away that he would be voting not guilty and, quote, I want to tell you right now that I will not change this vote. I want you to understand it doesn't matter what happens in this jury room because I believe this is right and I must not change my mind. Ten minutes later, they took another vote. This time, the undecided woman voted guilty. And then Bill Strack had to endure his fellow jurors shouting at him and calling him ugly names. They sent a note to the judge explaining the deadlock, and the judge instructed them to continue to deliberate. Now the other jurors were pissed. They wanted to go home. One woman wanted to get her Christmas shopping done. Bill Strack sat there and listened to 11 people care more about errands and getting home early than actually deliberating whether a man should live or die. They started yelling at him to change his damned vote and get us out of here. What are you, a professional juror? Branley done it, one yelled. What about that poor little girl? And then one said, quote, You're nothing but a lover. At this, Bill Strack refused to speak or take part in any discussion, and the judge was forced to declare a mistrial. As he denied Clarence Branley bail, he said, quote, I am entering the following order denying bail pending retrial of the capital murder case in that I find proof is evident in that a dispassionate jury would not only find you guilty of capital murder, but would assess a punishment of death. It was an extremely biased ruling, and what Don Brown told author Nick Davies was the most brazen declaration of prejudice he had ever heard. As jurors filed out, reporters were hurling questions, wanting to know who the holdout was. Bill's fellow jurors had no trouble pointing him out to reporters and anyone else watching. After the trial, Bill Strack was barraged with harassing phone calls, everything from heavy breathing to repeatedly calling him, quote, a lover. He had to leave his phone off the hook. The minute he put it back on the receiver, the calls would start. He was convinced there was a monitoring device on his phone. This went on until he called the sheriff. They traced the calls, but then they told Bill Strack that if he wanted to know who made the calls, he would have to get a court order. The whole town and every official was pissed that Bill Strack hung the jury, and they were not going to let him forget it. This harassment carried on through Clarence's second trial, his appeals, and even years on death row. Bill would occasionally still get these phone calls. He changed his number once, only for the calls to start back a day later. Clarence Branley's second trial started on January 20, 1981, as Ronald Reagan was sworn into office. Once again, an all-white jury was seated. This time, there was a new judge. Morris and Brown had successfully run Robertson off the case with a blistering motion charging him with bias and prejudice, going point by point through his egregious rulings. Texas had passed a new law January 1st that made it easier to remove prejudiced judges from a trial. Robertson was well aware. He voluntarily stepped down once he saw the defense's motion instead of facing a recusal hearing. Judge John Martin was chosen as his replacement. For once, the defense felt hopeful. Brown and Morris had both worked for Judge Martin's election. They knew him to be a fair, clean-cut defense attorney with a lot of trial experience. They considered him a friend. This was their first real win. They thought. One Saturday, early in the trial, George Morris received a phone call from a man named Ed Payne. He said he had information to share. His daughter was married to Gary Ackerman, and they lived in a trailer on his property. He said the day that girl was killed, Gary came home pacing frantically and told him a girl had been killed at the school that day. This was completely different from the story he had been telling, which was that he had left before her body was even discovered, along with Sesame and Martinez but he told his relatives otherwise, and also said he was worried because he knew where the dead girl's clothes were. He had seen them in the dumpster, but didn't tell anyone. Cheryl's clothes were not found until Monday following her murder, but they were found exactly where Gary Ackerman had told his family they would be on Saturday when he got home from work the day she was murdered. This was huge. Brown and Morris drafted a subpoena. They now had a witness who could directly dispute Gary Ackerman's testimony. Maybe now there was hope, but on the day they planned to put Ed Payne on the stand, they received word that Payne was no longer willing to cooperate. 
They could still call him to the stand, but if he denied the story, it would only hurt their case. And there were more bad tidings ahead. Their friend, Judge John Martin, had flipped. They thought at first it was his attempt to show impartiality, but as he ruled against them time and time again, it became clear. Martin planned to make a name for himself at the Conroe Courthouse with this trial. He intended to show solidarity with the rest of the racist officials. Brown and Morris were bereft, but they trudged on, viciously cross-examining Ranger West Stiles on why he hadn't collected any samples of blood hair, or saliva from the other janitors. I did not because they hadn't had any contact with her. That's the reason, he said. The ranger had no way of knowing this for sure. He just chose to believe their lies over what their supervisor, a black man, had told him. All the defense could hope for was that the jury could see the blind focus on Clarence Branley when there were at least four other suspects in the building, and they had gotten Icky Peace to admit that he had a set of keys, too. That was a win, if a small one. The prosecution had always claimed that Clarence was the only one with keys to the building. Gary Ackerman seemed more self-confident this go-around. I guess threatening his own father-in-law into not testifying had made him feel cocky. Martinez testified down party lines again. Finally, John Sessom was brought into the courtroom for his testimony. Jim Keeshan stood up and said, quote, May it please the court that this Mr. John Sessom we would tender him at this time to the defense counsel, and at this time, the state rests, Your Honor. Morrison Brown admitted that this was a brilliant move. Sessom had tried to refuse to testify for the prosecution, saying he no longer supported the other janitor's stories. So instead, they threw him to the defense. The defense cannot cross-examine their own witness, and they had no idea what Sessom would say. They rolled the dice and put him on the stand. They immediately tried to bring up his previous testimony and statements to which Keishin immediately objected. As Sessom was now a defense witness, they were not entitled to any of his previous statements for the prosecution. Morris tried hard to fight this. He said that that case was a mistrial, but that the judge had improperly revoked Branley's probation, and they were still fighting that appeal and had legal access to all exhibits from that trial, which included Sessom's testimony. But Judge John Martin disagreed. Quote, this court is not concerned with revocation or the prior trial. The witness sits up here. If you want him, fine. If not, dismiss him. George Morris said, quote, is it the ruling of the court that we will not be given the two statements of Mr. Sessom, any of the statements? Not prior testimony, the judge answered. Morris said that Mr. Sessom was not now and had never been a defense witness and passed him back. He was dismissed. During closing arguments, Jim Keishan got up and started with his prior closing argument and then whipped out a surprise. He told the jury that Clarence Branley had worked part-time for a funeral home and it appeared that this girl was molested after she was dead or unconscious. George Morris jumped up with his objection to this inflammatory statement. He was overruled. In a later appeal, Clarence's former employer said his job was janitorial and he was never around or had any contact with any bodies in the funeral home. But the damage in this trial was done. Keishan had just effectively painted Clarence Branley as a necrophiliac. The jury went out to deliberate and came back in an hour. They convicted Clarence Branley of capital murder. They were then sequestered for the night before coming back the next day to hear arguments on whether Clarence should be put to death. This time they came back in 45 minutes. Clarence Branley was sentenced to death. Morrison Brown set about immediately to prepare Clarence's appeal, and the case was starting to get attention outside of Conroe. Houston City Magazine ran a series that ran over two issues for the first time, openly suggesting that Clarence Branley had been railroaded. Now the defense attorneys were waiting for the courthouse to release the official record of the last trial. Mary Johnson, the court reporter for Branley's trial, kept apologizing for how long it was taking. Brown and Morris then went and filed a motion with District Clerk Peggy Stevens for an extra 60 days to prepare their appeal as they had not yet received the record. Judge Martin granted the extra 60 days to the defense. This was in late October. On January 21, 1982, they received a formal letter from Peggy Stevens that read, quote, 
This is to advise you that the record is complete. You now have 15 days in which to file any objection to the record. So while the Conroe Courthouse took months to produce the sprawling record, they gave the defense just two weeks to object to any factual errors. The transcript was 2,000 pages. There were photocopies of all exhibits and witness statements, photographs, etc. But something didn't seem right to Don Brown. The exhibit numbers were in a different order, and in court, there had been yellow sticky notes with a number. Now those exhibits did not show the yellow notes. And he found that statements were missing, photos were missing, as were Cheryl's clothing and other scientific evidence. Something was rotten. He could feel it. It wasn't just that things were missing. It was the strange photocopies. He went to Peggy Stevens, who said, I'm sure I don't know what could have happened. Then he demanded to see the originals. Peggy showed him what she had, and they were the same photocopies. Finally, one day, a man named Frank Robin pulled Don Brown aside. Robin, a young attorney, had recently been hired as Jim Keishan's assistant. He flat out told Brown that all of the evidence from the Branley case was missing, and that the DA, the judge, the court reporter Mary Johnson, and district clerk Peggy Stevens all knew about it. He was risking his job coming to the defense, but he felt he had to do what was right. Morris and Brown were cautious. They did not want to expose Frank Robin as their source, so instead they scheduled a hearing for February 5th, within their 15-day limit, but barely. They filed a motion about the discrepancies in the record and all the missing evidence. They asked that the originals be brought to court. Judge Martin gave the state a week to produce the evidence. In the meantime, the defense heard privately from the court reporter Mary Johnson. She was terrified, but determined to tell the truth. The evidence boxes with missing exhibits had been locked in her office as per protocol. She came to work one morning, and they were just gone. As soon as she found out, she went straight to Judge Martin, who called in Jim Keishan and District Clerk Peggy Stevens. Mary thought they had been trying to work things out, but she knew it was improper for the judge to be involved with this privately. And something else was bothering her. She had witnessed Keishan going in Judge Martin's chambers every morning for private meetings during the trial. It is highly improper for the judge and DA to meet out of presence of the defense, and Morris and Brown were livid. They always felt that the judge and prosecutor were colluding. They worked too much like a well-oiled machine at trial. Mary flat out said that they were rehearsing rulings and objections. So now they had a witness, but Mary was terrified of losing her job. Furiously, Morris and Brown drafted a motion for Judge Martin's recusal. Instead of filing the motion, they simply went to the judge and said if he didn't step down himself, they would file the motion and go public about the charges of the judge and district attorney meeting secretly and plotting trial strategies. Judge John Martin quickly stepped down, and Judge Lynn Coker took over. Don Brown finally finished writing their official objection to the trial record and filed it. He was now working alone as George Morris had become ill, diagnosed with lung cancer. George Morris would die before the end of Clarence's appeals. There was then a negotiation to correct all errors in the record, but there was nothing they could do about the missing exhibits. They were gone and Judge Lynn Coker was not interested in hearing the attorneys argue over it. Don Brown wrote a 75-page appeal and filed it with the Criminal Court of Appeals. Several months later, the appeals court wrote back that they would only accept 50 pages. Brown, now used to such bureaucratic bullshit, calmly went to his own secretary and asked if she could change the font and tighten the margins to make it fit 50 pages. She said, sure, no problem and even left him an additional six pages to argue on. Making matters worse, in a U.S. Supreme Court ruling that had nothing to do with Clarence Branley, the court had ruled that in death row appeals, if the defendant had first had a hung jury, the court would now only hear evidence of the second trial, which produced a conviction. This sounds like a movie, a comedy of errors, except it's not funny. It's about a man's life. This ruling by the Supreme Court meant that the whole record of the first trial was wiped, including the prejudicial behavior of Judge Sam Robertson, as well as the changing statements of the other janitors. So the ruling by the Texas Criminal Court of Appeals went as you might imagine. 
they upheld every argument for the prosecution, finding no misconduct, despite the missing exhibits, which they said was unfortunate, but did not matter now. And now that he had lost the first appeal, Clarence Branley's execution date could be set. Judge John Martin managed to get back on the Branley case at the behest of District Court Clerk Peggy Stevens just so that he could set the execution date. The reason why? Peggy Stevens wanted it to be January 16th, which was her birthday. Per Nick Davies' book, White Lies, the defense learned the truth yet again from Mary Johnson. In 1986, Clarence Branley's appellate attorneys received a tip. The prosecution had gotten a call and interviewed a witness named Brenda Medina. She called the DA to say that her former live-in boyfriend, James Dexter Robinson, woke her up in the middle of the night and admitted to her that on August 23, 1980, he committed a rape and a murder. He said that he had hidden the body well so that there would be time for him to gather his stuff and leave the state before anyone found her. When she woke up, James was gone, and there was a pair of blood-splattered shoes, which she threw away. Brenda had been 16 years old and pregnant with his child. She was used to his lies and didn't believe him. She thought he was trying to run away from the responsibility of the child. What's more, she had actually been raped by James and then became pregnant. She didn't want to explain that to her parents, so she moved in with him. Robinson was abusive to Brenda, so she did not want him back in her life after he took off. She thought it was for the best until she heard about the Branley case and the details were so similar to the story James had told her. James Dexter Robinson used to work at Conroe High. When Clarence Branley took over from the previous supervisor, all keys were supposed to have been handed over, but one set did not make it to Clarence. Robinson had kept his set of keys. The DA said Brenda Medina was untrustworthy and felt he had no obligation to tell Branley's defense team about her tip. But Brenda Medina got a lawyer who contacted Branley's defense, who took a sworn statement from her. And then the defense petitioned the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals for a writ of habeas corpus, and the court then called for an evidentiary hearing. At the hearing, Brenda Medina testified. And now Gary Ackerman testified that he had seen James Robinson at the high school on the morning of the murder. John Sessom also agreed to testify and had changed his story. Now he said he had seen Gary Ackerman follow Cheryl up the loft stairs. He said he had heard her screaming no. Gary threatened him and told him not to tell anyone. But Gary did tell someone. It was Texas Ranger Wes Stiles. The ranger threatened to arrest John Sessom if his story did not match the other janitors. This was explosive new evidence, and yet again, the appeal was denied. Clarence Branley would not get a new trial. By now, the FBI had decided to get involved, and Centurion Ministries, based out of Princeton, New Jersey, took on the case. They worked with a private investigator named James McCloskey, a former clergyman who had now made it his life's work to fight wrongful convictions. McCloskey was able to get a videotaped statement from Gary Ackerman, who confessed that James Robinson was the one who raped and murdered Cheryl Ferguson. He quickly recanted, but by then, other witnesses came forward. Two people gave statements that they had heard Gary Ackerman say he knew who killed Cheryl Ferguson and that it wasn't Clarence Branley. With these new video statements and intervention by the FBI, just six days before his scheduled execution date, Clarence Branley was granted a new evidentiary hearing. James Robinson, Gary Ackerman, and Ranger West Stiles all testified for the prosecution, but their shifting stories actually helped the defense this time. On cross-examination, Robinson admitted that he did tell Brenda Medina he had killed Cheryl, but it was only to scare her so she wouldn't come after him looking for child support. Ackerman, under cross-examination, admitted that Robinson had been at the school on the morning of Cheryl's murder. Even better, under a vicious cross-examination, Texas Ranger Wes Stiles admitted that he had chosen Branley as the only suspect before he had ever interviewed any other witnesses. And John Sessom finally testified to the truth. He and Sam Martinez had been near the drinking fountain and saw Gary Ackerman grab Cheryl Ferguson a man that he didn't know but who he said had no teeth, 
was standing there watching and ran up the loft stairs after Ackerman and the screaming Cheryl Ferguson. James Dexter Robinson was missing some of his front teeth. Sesum said this man had something in his hands. It was a belt. The prosecution had never been able to prove what ligature had been used to strangle Cheryl, though they insisted Clarence Branley had a belt on that day. Branley had not worn a belt, and part of those missing photographs from the exhibits would have proven it. He had on pants with an elastic waistband. He had never changed his story about this, and the state had never been able to prove he wore a belt. Sesum had made a good witness this time. He had managed to stay sober the night before his testimony. He told how Gary Ackerman had threatened him as they drove home that day, and then how Ranger Stiles had also threatened him. Weeping, he explained to the court that he had perjured himself at the previous trials out of fear. He said, quote, I run from people over this for a long time, but you can't run from yourself or your feelings or your own conscience. Henry Icky Peace also finally came forward with the truth. Remember how he could not read the original statement he had signed? He had told the police that Gary Ackerman had disappeared during the time that the girl was attacked and that Martinez knew the girl was missing before anyone came looking for her. That was not what his statement had said. His statement implicated Clarence Branley and matched the other janitor's statements. He signed it without knowing what it actually said. But all of the janitors knew the actual truth. Icky had been threatened by Ranger Stiles, who had snatched him up by his shirt and said he would blow his head off if he told the truth. Despite this, Icky Peace had gone to the DA, Jim Keeshan, and told the truth, and the DA assured him that he would handle it. This was proof that Keishan had suborned perjury, as by the time Clarence went on trial, all four of the janitors told the same story. Ackerman and Martinez, for their own reasons, Sesame in peace because they finally gave in to all the threats. Mary Johnson, the court reporter for Judge Martin, also testified at the evidentiary hearing about the missing files, the secret meetings between the judge and the DA, and about Peggy Stevens and Judge Martin choosing the execution date for Peggy's birthday. They thought Mary would find it funny, too, because it also happened to be her birthday. Mary Johnson sobbed on the stand as she told the truth and said she knew she would lose her job over this. Sure enough, she was called the next morning and told to take a two-week leave. When she returned to work, Judge John Martin fired her. She had come to the defense, terrified of losing her job, and she had been right. Not only that, she tried to freelance with other judges at the Conroe Courthouse, but could not get work because no one wanted to be associated with her. She was now the enemy. She had betrayed them all. During this hearing, Clarence Branley finally had the public on his side. There had been a 60-minute segment on the case, and James McCloskey organized peaceful demonstrations. They marched on the courthouse. They marched to the governor's mansion, holding signs and yelling, Justice! Justice! There were t-shirts, bumper stickers, and statewide mailings. The demonstrations made Texas news, and then national news. The tide had finally turned. After the evidentiary hearing, Judge Perry Pickett ordered a new trial, saying that in his 30-year career, quote, no case has presented a more shocking scenario of the effects of racial prejudice, perjured testimony, witness intimidation, and an investigation the outcome of which was predetermined. On October 9, 1987, the Court of Criminal Appeals granted Clarence Branley a new trial. And yet Clarence Branley was not freed until January 23, 1990, as the state decided whether or not to pursue a new trial. On December 13, 1989, Judge Pickett called for Clarence Branley's release. The Court of Criminal Appeals had turned over his conviction, and yet Branley still sat behind bars as the Conroe Courthouse full of corrupt officials kept filing motions begging for new hearings. The charges against Clarence Branley were finally officially dropped in October of 1990. He had spent nine years, five months, and 23 days behind bars almost seven of those years on death row. In the fall of 2014, the Conroe Police Department told a reporter that they had no intentions of reopening the case. Gary Ackerman and James Robinson were never arrested or questioned, much less brought to trial. Gary Ackerman and his wife Cindy divorced in 1996. 
She never spoke publicly against him. He still lives today. James Dexter Robinson married and divorced three more times and is still alive as far as I can find. John Sessom returned to his home of Mississippi and died in December of 2014. I could not find any records on Sam Martinez. We may never know what really happened to Cheryl Ferguson in that Conroe High School auditorium, but most theories of the case are that Robinson raped Cheryl as Gary held her down, and also that Sam Martinez had watched the door. While everyone was so worried about Clarence Branley's missing time, they forgot that Icky Peace had also been on his own, working in the teacher's lounge. John Sessom knew the truth, but was too scared to come forward. So he drowned himself in alcohol. Icky Peace later admitted to having continuous nightmares about the case and his lies. Clarence Branley came out of prison and began a new life. He became an ordained Baptist minister and married Melvina Sims in November of 1990. He filed lawsuits to receive compensation for his years on death row, but because he had never received a pardon or a new trial, he was not granted relief from the court on the basis of actual innocence. Therefore, he could not legally receive compensation. On top of that, as soon as he got out, he was hit with a lien for $50,000 in back child support. Child support he would have been paying in those 10 years, but couldn't, because he was in jail and then prison for the entire time. He moved out of Conroe, never to return. He struggled finding and keeping work, but he maintained his faith and was happily married. Along with not receiving compensation, he also never received an apology. Conroe will never admit to what they did to Clarence Branley. Clarence Branley died September 2, 2018, from pneumonia. He was 66 years old. He had suffered for 10 years while three judges, two prosecutors, the Conroe police, a Texas Ranger, and even the damn district court clerk all colluded against him to railroad this innocent man onto death row. All because of the color of his skin. Once Texas Ranger West Stiles refused to look at any other suspect, the entire Montgomery court in Conroe conspired to make sure a black man went down for this crime, despite so much evidence to the contrary. I believe that the missing evidence didn't just go missing. Mary Thompson pointed out that Jim Keishan had a key to her office. This was a criminal conspiracy to lynch a black man inside the courtroom rather than on the courtroom lawn like they would have in the 1920s. This happened in 1980. Though I bleeped the N-word, I hope you truly feel the gravity of racism Clarence Branley faced when he was wrongly accused. City, county, and state officials openly used that word throughout Clarence's case. And what about Cheryl Ferguson, an innocent young girl whose life was cut short? The corrupt officials in Conroe would rather see an innocent black man hang for her brutal rape and murder than to avenge her death by prosecuting the men who were actually responsible. This case is a double tragedy. There is no justice for Cheryl Ferguson. There was no effort to further investigate her murder once Branley was freed. She was forgotten, pushed aside for politics in the Conroe courthouse. If they had reopened the investigation, it would be admitting they were wrong. The racist officials did not and would not ever admit they railroaded a poor black janitor rather than conduct a proper investigation into Cheryl's rape and murder. And though he was released, Clarence Branley was never pardoned and never received compensation for the 10 years the state of Texas stole from him. His life was never the same. He did not receive justice either, and he came within six days of being murdered by the state of Texas for a crime he did not commit. Southern Fried True Crime is written and produced by me, Erica Kelly. The original graphic art is by Coley Horner, and Southern Fried's original music is by Rob Harrison of Gamma Radio. Special thanks to Haley Grave for her research assistance on this case. And I highly recommend Nick Davies' brilliant book, White Lies, Rape, Murder, and Justice, Texas Style. It's honestly one of the best true crime books I've read in years. And thank you, listener Hannah there, for suggesting this case. Y'all, the live show with Alicia and Stacy from Trashy Divorces is next week. Our Scattered, Covered, and Smothered tour will be in Atlanta on Sunday, August 25th at Vinkman's, and the doors open at 5 p.m. I've got a link to buy tickets in the show notes. 
There will be a Southern-inspired menu for the evening, different types of seating for different tiers, and a meet-and-greet for VIP guests that you can also add to any other ticket. If you enjoyed today's show, don't forget to subscribe and please tell a friend or rate and review on iTunes. I'm also on most large platforms like Stitcher and other podcatchers. If you're interested in supporting the show, please visit my website, southernfriedtruecrime.com. There you can sign up to be a patron of the show, make a one-time donation, or purchase show merchandise. That's southernfriedtruecrime.com. If you have any case suggestions, please email southernfriedtruecrime at gmail.com. Private messages on social media get lost, so email is best, and please feel free to reach out. I love hearing from you guys. Until next time, thanks so much for listening. Y'all take care.